Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of finding another person that's building a more humane world from the inside out. And my guest today is Dr. Alfonso Sanders, provost and vice president for academic affairs down at Lincoln University, and also a very accomplished uh, musician that we'll talk probably more about music than anything else. <laughs> Welcome, Alfonso. Well, thank you, Dick. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have met you. And of course, I didn't know it was going to lead to becoming a star here in Jefferson City, but... Here I am. I need to tell our audience uh, how we met. To me, this is one of the, the the magical mysteries of the universe as to how these things happen. So I'm I'm standing down in front of the post office in Jeff City with my Earth flag and little sign that says uh, "People for Peace in Jefferson City." I do it every Wednesday from twelve to one or so. And uh, this. Uh, gentleman, a black gentleman with uh, a little bit of white hair, approaches me with a bottle of water. And what did I say? I think I said, I, I, I have some, I don't use the plastic bottle or something like it, but thank you very much. <laughs> and then we got to talking. And before we were done, I had given you my book and you'd given me your CD. <laughs> that sounds about right. So you're mostly from Mississippi, it seems. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a kind of a transplant. I was born in Dawson, Georgia, uh, which happens to be the birthplace of Otis Redden. And Otis was, I guess, left Dawson after his in his early years and was was uh, moved to Macon with his parents. And uh, I stayed in Dawson throughout my uh, up to my teenage years, and then I moved to Atlanta with my parents. They 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 were there, and um, that's kind of what we call home now. But I left there and went other places, and somehow I landed in Mississippi chasing music. So, and I stayed stayed there in, in Mississippi roughly twenty years. Wow! I read on the internet that you picked up a trumpet when you were in high school, and that began something that uh, still goes on in your life. Yeah, it was a uh, like most young guys down in South Georgia, you know, we had dreams and and our grand grandeur of becoming professional baseball players. And and I had a friend on the baseball team, and he he was in the band, played trumpet, and he he left it either by mistake or just didn't want to be bothered with it anymore. But I, I took it home to give it to him the next day. But in the meantime, I went in the case and tried to figure it out. So it led to more frustration than I, than I cared for because I didn't know what I was doing. And, and the next day he showed me how to, to develop, you know, a sound. So, and before I knew it, I was hooked on something. Had you grown up with music in the house? Uh... Well, just the, the basic things. My grandmother, you know, she sang all the time in the house and not for any purpose other than to ease her trouble in mind. Most the time so i always woke up in the morning with some melody or some some humming or something going on and um didn't know if that was leading to anything but uh it happened to i guess have 
created something in me. Did you go to college for music education? Eventually I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of bummed around for a while and went back to college in my uh, early 20s. And after I started, I made a decision that I would keep going once I found that I wouldn't be able to play the trumpet anymore. And that's a, that's a, that's a different story, but one of those things that turned into something else. I had a, a, a nerve damage that was a result of, of, of brass poisoning that I didn't understand at the time. Mm. And, and so, of course, it led to me not being able to play the horn as I expected. And it led me to think about music education and, and teaching. And, and as I developed that habit and uh, toward a profession that I didn't know was going to be the rest of my life, I stumbled into saxophone and then eventually into flute and, and harmonica. And 20 years after that, somewhere around there, it might have been a little later, I uh, picked up a, a, a flugelhorn hmm. that I found at a university I was working at there at Mississippi Valley State University and uh, where I taught you know later for 15 years mm -hmm. but but in picking it up it it, it, it gave me at least a, a little more confidence that maybe my lip is healed and I can give it another try so I you know still play a modest trumpet you know uh, we've listened to your CD it sounds like blues but then there's there's such a mix in it. What do you call it? Well, I, I, call, I titled it, uh, titled the uh, CD Mississippi Influence because all of the basic styles that we know of, they are rooted in, in, in the blues, which the blues and jazz, you know, are, I would call them uh, uh, closely, closely related kinfolk. You know, but but we know that uh, the connection between Mississippi and the Mississippi River, the Mississippi Delta, and the, the link between that and New Orleans, and especially the link between St. Louis, you know, uh, gives us a broad variety, uh, and it, and of course that Memphis connection coming coming off that river too. It just gives us a broad variety of things that develop when you have. Uh, harbor areas you know in those port areas you have a very diverse palette of people coming through which leads to a larger palette for music making well let's listen to one of those numbers uh this one i have queued up here is called delta sun
I started working at Delta State University where I was very fortunate to work along with uh, people in performances. And I started a, a Delta Jazz Society group to feed my jazz bands and have professional people coming in with the community supporting it. And from that, uh, I met uh, some people who uh, were interested in starting a, a Delta Music Institute, which I was named the, the, uh, the founding chair for that. And so now that Delta Music Institute, of course, is doing quite well with uh, uh, students. And, uh, and from that point, I was asked, to, would I come and be a director for the B.B. King Recording Studio to kind of get it off the ground? And I took that opportunity to get back to my alma mater to uh, see if I could help with that and, uh, and stay 15 years as well. <laughs> so yeah. I titled that influence and, and, uh, and I tried to do a variety of things. And if you notice on one of those songs, I, I whistled at the end, it's called Happy. I just titled it Happy because I grew up listening to Andy Griffith. So I put a little ditty in that thing, you know. Well, you have a gentle presence and a gentleness in your music. Can you attribute that to your grandma or just uh, how do you figure that? Well, definitely my personality. You know, she was, she was, well, she was everything. You know, she, she made sure I was well cared for. And, uh, and you know, grow, growing up with grandparents is always a treat for most children uh, because grandparents are slightly different and in, in, in terms of connecting themselves to you in a different way. They, they see two generations and sometimes mothers see one generation, you know. So I think she gave me the best of that world. You know, she was, she was a very kind woman. Well, your, your kindness is what drew us together. I was wondering how you happened to be up here at Lincoln University where I taught for 30 years. Yeah, and that was, that was good to know too. I, know your history at, at that time and, and realizing that you retired Lincolnite, as they say. Um, I had ventured, you know, in the area at, uh, doing music throughout, you know, the area of St. Louis and so forth. And, and I had um, crossed paths with the president in education, you know, some time ago. And uh, she was asking about maybe some effort to help her build maybe the education developments that she had visions for. And uh, at first I, I turned it down because I didn't know if it was really the right thing to do. But then of course the following year it developed and I took a chance and I'm glad I did. You know, I, I see a lot of, a lot of promise and there's so many beautiful people at Lincoln, you know, on the faculty side, meeting a lot of students. I have a great uh, group of people, you know, in the administration area, you know, work with, with really great deans. So yeah, progress seems to be something that we're finding lots of favor in, you know, and um, and COVID, of course, threw a, a little wrench in there where we plan, but we don't know if the plan will hold any water. You all are actually having in-class, face-to-face, uh, -face, but all mass gatherings, right? Right, right. We're, we're doing everything that's listed in the uh, CDC guidelines, and we've also done things that are particular to our own campus and things that we understood, you know, about our student traffic activity and 
try to you know build things around that culture, which seems to be working at this point. We now we're in the middle of going home for the Labor Day weekend, and right. we just have to see what the results will be. But at the present, we only have very small uh, numbers. We're, we're not even in the double digits yet. We're very fortunate at th at this point. But as you know, so there's some particular cautions that are taken, you know, with the African American community because. We know that there's been a large concern about the uh, virus maybe attacking some hereditary traits that we don't understand. So a lot of carefulness going on. Uh, we only have a, like a small amount of students compared to our entire enrollment that live on the campus. And we have the larger part of our campus are commuter students. So far, it's been working out. And I'm just happy and hope that we'll see, see some positive things when we return. Your style of um, administrating as a vice president for academic affairs, I picture you as a good listener. Would you say that you're a good listener? I would hope so. I mean, it's one of the things that we know builds relationships is being able to understand more than you're being understood. So, you know, I try to uh, adhere to that, that uh, listening. Listening is important because sometimes you can enter conversations in the wrong paradigm. And if you listen long enough, the, the paradigms will shift for you and maybe you can understand a little bit better. That, that makes me smile because uh, one of the older students that was out greeting the new students Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't recognize him right away, but I had found a basketball down in the canal as mm -hmm. part of my walk. And as I was coming up to my car, here were these two young black men. And uh, this one fellow says, hit me. <laughs> so so I, I got the ball to him quickly. And uh, I said, hey, it's yours. Uh, enjoy it. And he said, uh, you don't remember me, do you, Dr. Dalton? <laughs> And then he said, you're the one that taught me about the paradigm shift. <laughs> so, Dr. Alfonso Sanders, it seems to me that Lincoln not only has a new provost in you and, and vice president for academic affairs, but an artist in residence. Are you, are you going to have some musical influence in the way things go around there? Well, I, I would hope so. You know, there there are concerns uh, about past, you know, where the music program was was uh, dropped for whatever purposes. You know, I heard it was financial reasons. But uh, there are ways to do it, and I'm looking for ways to connect some of those dots. You know, we still have, have a good art art program with, with uh, uh, several artists that, uh, that are recognized. And I wanted to see if there are ways to do other things, maybe through technology, that we wouldn't maybe have thought about as opposed to, to developing a, a traditional music program again. Because you're doing, you're doing a, a podcast right now that uh, could lead to things if, if students understood the dynamics, you know, behind it when music is involved and when artists get together. I would say we could think about it in terms of a, a fashionable design, but a high interest. You know, we just had a, this whole new wave of things that's happening through companies wanting to buy something as simple as a TikTok thing, which I didn't understand at first. But now it is such a, a connecting point for, for lots of people. And, and of course, if you know anything about advertising, uh, people want to contact people. So I think, I think it's a lot, of, a lot of potential and possibilities in having an understanding with modern 
music technology. And so, it, but you know, we're working on a, a project and a plan with, you know, with some industry people and uh, for sake of mentioning some of them without understanding where the whole project is going, I won't mention any, but it was to develop uh, connections with music technology with industry support so that we could have our students, uh, you know, talking and developing with professional people. Mm -hmm. And that kind of fizzled out when we had to go into the COVID uh, shift because it took everything that we had to, to, re to redevelop a focus so we could, you know, remain a, an active academic unit there, you know, right. in, in Jefferson City here. Right. Yeah, finances has been a difficult thing, but you all had a great uh, program recently of raising money, didn't you? The president has done a great job of connecting, you know, uh, some of the uh, uh, community people, people in, you know, in and out of state. Uh, and uh, we're, we've raised, I guess this is the first time we've raised, you know, over $2 million mark between a, a, a small number of months, basically. Yeah. You know. And uh, we have, uh, you know, at the helm of that is uh, Andre Griston, and he's doing just doing a great job. Well, uh, Andre and I have shared the stage together, done a little singing together and uh, a little acting together. You'll you'll find, uh, of course, COVID has interfered quite a bit, but uh, there has been a very active community theater, several groups in town. Right. I did my first uh, acting at the Lincoln uh, Langston Hughes Theater. Langston Hughes is a beautiful little theater. So yeah, we, we, we have thoughts about a lot of things and we're working on on some ideals, but in the meantime, we're trying to be a little, little pragmatic about exactly where we are and what do we need to do now right. in order you know, to, to, to gain some, you know, some, a better footing. And, and, and we got a great foundation that, that's been laid and sometimes you have to look at the future and see what are you, you know, what are you building on top of the foundation itself, you know. But but theater is one of those things that, that I think about a lot, and that's a part of the film industry, and that's a part of the music technology thing that I was talking about. It's connecting more things in, in, in the development of, of degree study, uh, multi-disciplines, you know. Well, you were the chair of the fine arts department? Yes. I guess that's music, theater. Uh, they well, had we, a yeah, we didn't have a degree in theater, but we did have a theater program. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. it, music, art, and uh, very fortunate to have people who were interested in developing the B.B. Uh, King recording studio. And at that time, B.B. King was alive. And uh, I developed a, 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 an interesting relationship with him as as a as an educator, found out a lot about him that way, but also as you know, in the world of music that we share too. So you were the the director of that BB King recording studio, mm, right? And after BB's death, I guess coincidentally that you you know contacted me to try to do something for this uh, uh, broadcast this weekend. But tomorrow at two o'clock, and I don't know if it means anything, but it'll stay on YouTube on a, on a, on a Mississippi Valley State uh, University channel, but it will be connected with the B.B. King Museum. And what I did five years ago in talking to a gentleman by the name of Robert Terrell, he played a lead role in the in the B.B. King Museum there and, and as a director of their operations. But uh, we started talking after B.B. died and to try to build a resolution that we would do something and uh, it turned out that we had an idea about uh, 
the B.B. King Symposium, a day that we would bring, bring musicians together, bring historians, bring people who were fascinated with the, the lifestyle of bluesmen and so on and so on. And we uh, started our first one after B.B. died that uh, summer. Uh, we had the first one in September, which is his birth month. And from that point, we did five uh, successful ones, uh, which we're going to air five years of that archive on tomorrow at wow. two o'clock. It'll be on a YouTube channel. And if you look up Mississippi Valley State uh, University YouTube station, you should find that without, without a problem. Wonderful. Uh, and so, you know, five years, we've lost uh, Big George Brock. Might be in the end of July. And Big George Brock is a, is a staple blues musician out of St. Louis. And he was very close friends with B.B. King and George went, went blind, I guess, in his later years. And I got a chance to spend a lot of time with him and get to know him because he always came to the Delta and I got a chance to play with him quite a bit. Uh, but he was a great harmonica player and he sang, you know, his songs and he, and he, and he understood that Mississippi Delta because that's where he was raised. And a lot of his music reflected that even in, even in his St. Louis residence, you know, mm -hmm. so I really, think that along with Big George Brock, uh, others are recognized in this uh, viewing tomorrow. And uh, we've lost, uh, you know, members of BB's band along the way. And many of those guys were very faithful to being at the symposium, you know, for those years that they were alive. Yeah. But it's been a great opportunity, you know, for people to connect some things by realizing that uh, people from all over the world were connected uh, with a music by a gentleman that uh, the world now knows as B.B. King, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and you're talking about a man of peace. He was one, one fine gentleman, mm -hmm. educated himself along the way, and, and he never missed a beat. But a kind gentleman, never heard him talk about those years of the chilling circuit as being anything bad. I even heard him one time tell a, a, one, a story, well, about one of the, one of the musicians uh, was a, a young drummer that he allowed to be in his band would often sub with him if he had trouble with his staple musicians. Sometimes they, were, they could either get into some habits that maybe wouldn't be beneficial to the performances and he could call some of the subs. But he gave a young guy, um, and uh, we call him TC, Tony Coleman, but TC was, was one of those young musicians that B.B. had to get straight and, and he was telling B.B., complaining to B.B. about where they were playing because B.B. would take a lot of jobs that were somewhat beneath other musicians. And he only did it because it kept a connection between him and his home and how he grew up. And no matter what those conditions were, B.B. never talked about him. He always just did his best. And so Tony was complaining about an old club that they were playing in and the floor of the stage was not, you know, like not very solid. And of course, he playing, him being a drummer and playing drums, of course, that made him concerned. But he started talking about the place. And B.B. told us, well, you know, son, uh, do, do you have a job? And he told him, yes. So he, he told him, well, you might want to keep it that way. And of course, the story is told different ways. But it, in, it, in essence, I'm paraphrasing to get to the point that B.B. Uh, was very, told him very mindful that all these people who are in this club, they're coming to support us. So you can't, you can't. You know, you can't talk about, you know, people say it a different ways. You can't talk about the place that you, you know, that's feeding you. Kind of like, right. you know, very kind man. Very kind well, man. Feel free to share any stories about uh, 
your relationship with him that you uh, have come to mind? I'm, I'm sure our listeners would be fascinated. Yeah, and uh, and like BB, he was one of those guys that everybody claimed. I mean, he he uh, he was spending hours talking to any stranger, and and after his shows, I remember times when uh, and there was one special occasion I was in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, and he was doing a show. And I remember him inviting me up to, you know, to his room. And, uh, and he, you know, by that time, he was doing these workshop clinics. And we were calling them B.B. King International Workshops, you know. That, and he came home every June. And he would put on a major concert. And he would give the money, you know, give the money away to a lady who was running a club there that brought all of the prominent musicians that, that would come through the Mississippi Delta. They would come there and perform. And that was a part of that chilling circuit movement. But the lady became known now as the queen of Juke. And she owned a place called Club Ebony there that B.B. ultimately bought after she retired out. And he bought it from her as a kind gesture and gave it to the museum. And they now take care of it. But many people, James Brown, Count Basie Orchestra, and people like Lil Milton and Bobby Rush, I can name on and on and on of guys who came through the play and they cut their teeth in that Delta club. But B.B. Was, was, was always giving back, giving back and giving back. And this particular time, he, uh, I watched him play the performance and then come back downstairs and talk to people for hours down in the hotel lobby. And if you ever met B.B., you, you called him friend and and even if he didn't remember your name, he'd always remember, remember your face of some sort in order to always remember. If you started talking to him, he could tell you pretty much where, you, where the conversation was held and he remembered the times. And it was a fascinating memory, you know, that he had. Uh, but that particular time when he finished, he went back to upstairs and he invited, uh, you know, uh, a few people up to the room and we, we sat and started talking about things and uh, he and he went back in history and, and because I had such a fascination with you know jazz history and, and trying to play myself he was telling me about the times he met Charlie Parker you know who was from Kansas City matter of fact this is the hundred year anniversary of Charlie Parker too this year Charlie was born August 29th I believe and mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, this was his would have been his hundredth birthday but uh, he talked about him and John Coltrane and meeting those guys in different bands. And he even had some of the most prominent jazz musicians in his band that came out of Memphis, including uh, George Coleman, who was Miles Davis's 19, uh, early 60s tenor saxophone player. Mm. And uh, he also had Booker Little, who became one of the most prominent you know, uh, jazz trumpet players in, in the world, and so on and so on. And, and those, those guys were members of his band. Uh, and and he, he always said that when he got to Memphis, he really only played the Delta style and where you, you know, you twang on the guitar and you play how you felt, but maybe other people didn't know how to join in and play with you because it was such a spontaneous uh, activity to play Delta guitar like that <laughs> until he, when he got to Memphis, he said he, that the guys couldn't play with him and they started teaching him about the 12 bar blues. How do you actually play in time and play that style of music, that Memphis thing? And B.B. had one thing that he had that he had these big, large, fat fingers that if he pressed a string down, he could get a, 
a vibrato that you could get by the best classically trained violinists. And when you hear his sound on a guitar, you can tell this BB from that one note. And he always said that he owed a debt of gratitude to musicians who taught him and who helped him along the way. He never, never forgot that, that path. When you're messing up your music, he just, he just, okay, you, you know, you, you're going to be all right. But uh, he would always say peace, you know, at the end of it, when he, when he, when you depart, that was, and I, and to this day, that is how I try to end conversations, you know, is with that word. And I think that we're misunderstanding a lot uh, and reading your book too. I haven't got in the thick of a lot, but I've been reading, I've been spot reading it based on how I, you know, how I think about things. But I, I know that sometimes you have to convince yourself that you can have some thoughts that you have to control. And if you don't get them under control, you might can do other things too with, you know, with yourself. Yes. So people have to come to grips with, with those things. I believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. And, 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 you know, if you want to talk about the history, which I'm fascinated with, and I put my, myself into the, the play, I often thought that the, that the symposium would give us a platform to do just that. And there are stories that I've heard along the way, for instance, how BB's kindness, you know, during that, that period, I know you, maybe a lot of, of your listeners will know about the Green Book the story of the Green Book and, right. and develop a movie out of it to follow one one person to show you how that uh, book worked. But BB during that time, you know, he would have to move from city to city because they couldn't stop. And he had bought a bus by that time and they couldn't get gas and a lot of things were going wrong at times for, for the travel part of his career. But there was one incident that um, I, I heard B.B. talk about, and you probably can find it in some, some writings, is that his bus driver, who he was endeared to, you know, because he drove them from place to place for, for, you know, time after time. But one particular time, he ended up having a misfortunate accident, which caused the death of a, of a person. And B.B. vowed that he would, he would pay and make sure that that family was well taken care of. And he kept his promise. Mm -hmm. And so that was evident, you know, and mm -hmm. and and what he did. And of course, there are many other stories I can tell if you want to ask stories about BB's life. But I just, you know, talk, we were talking about peace. And, and I really do think that peace is the only word that we have to know the deeper meaning to, because just the idea of the, of the word might not get us there. But there's a need for it. You know, no matter where you go, and 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 it and it peace helps us shift paradigms. If you want to talk about that, you know, you and you can't get to the the better part of any paradigm, you know, without peace, because conversations have to be had, and true conversations have to be have to be developed when there is real peace in the room. Well, while you're talking about BB King and peace and blues and jazz and this diverse conversation that we're having. Uh, let me just uh, put a plug in for our KOPN pledge drive that's going on. Because of the COVID situation, we're, we're not doing call-in right today. Uh, call-in days are next uh, Sunday and Monday, but uh, folks listening out there, uh, you can pledge anytime at KOPN. 
www.ghostbusinessfellowship.org. And if this show is meaningful to you and, and the other shows on KOPN, you're really uh, paying for a service. I know it's a donation, but <laughs> you're taking advantage of a really good deal. And uh, by showing your support, like my cat here is showing support, maybe you can do a little more than she's doing and and uh, put some money into the, the kitty. Oh, into the kitty for uh, KOPN.org. And uh, we appreciate anything that you're able to uh, share with us. So let's get back to you, Alfonso Sanders, uh, Vice President for Academic Affairs at Lincoln University, a very talented musician in your own right with your uh, tenor saxophone and, and uh, other instruments that you've mastered. We say it's, it's a small world, but in actuality, it is a small world because every human being you meet, you never know that destiny they won't know yours you know but it but it becomes a challenge if we don't all understand that our destinies are pretty much the same <laughs> so <laughs> yes color doesn't have a lot to do with that uh, yeah that's a that's an interesting thing you know we start to talk about that whole piece you know because i don't know if we've defined uh it would take it would take a a, a large uh, palette of colors to define each person if you really want to talk about color. So it, would, it couldn't be that simple. It couldn't be black and white, it could, it, but we've made it that simple. And, and in some ways, that simplicity has caused us to, to overlook the possibility of a stronger connection of humanity just because of that. And I, but if you look at visual artists, they'd have to admonish and love all the colors because that's the only way you can get the defined uh, piece that you're working on. And you have to mix colors sometimes. And, and generally, your more neutral colors are black and white. They almost don't have a voice. <laughs> the world of art is like they're, they're, they're there for, for shading and light purposes and to make things to illuminate, right? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about those things connecting, you know, because I couldn't imagine the world, you know, without shape or value, you know, or without voice and sound, we would have a pretty dark existence, you know, without the arts generally. We've talked about your grandmother's influence, but uh, music itself seems to have been a powerful influence, at least in your life, for creating that demeanor that you're speaking of. Right. Like I said, I stumbled into it just because the trumpet was left there. And my curiosity carried me a, another step further. And as I became recognized as the, the, the kid in the neighborhood making that noise, I was introduced to the band director of, that, of the high school. And he was such a, an, an interesting person. He, he believed in the arts so heavily. And he taught everything from the angle of nine, you know, the, the nine philosophical concepts which dealt with uh, art and music as a part of it. Language was one thing, religion was one. And so he went through it all this all the time, but we, we talked about a lot of things as I was trying to learn about music. He made sure that I understood that music only would be a part or an extension of your own mind. And mm -hmm. if you didn't develop your mind, 
you might not be able to get to the music you're trying to chase. And so it made more sense to me as, as I went through that with him in my, my early stages in music development. But along the way, I met people just like him. You know, when he, his name was G.D. Burroughs, and he, he used to always tell us, now that G.D. stands for something, I don't want to have to use it. You know, the word was a Glenn, and, you know, and so and I always think about that because I laugh when you would do things that the average adult might look down on you. He always found a way to make it positive. And if he found you doing things that you really weren't supposed to be doing, he always made a, some kind of valuable lesson out of it. But most of the time, he would allow you to share the reasoning behind it. And, and once you finished sharing the reasoning, I think you heard yourself loud and clear enough that he didn't have to say much. He was a very, very fascinating man. When I moved out of the South Georgia area, uh, uh, migrated to the Atlanta area with my parents, my mother, of course, was very inspirational, you know, in helping me keep focus. And she knew I was struggling at the time to try to, because I wasn't going to college during that time. I was chasing the music for the value of what it was. And that meant I had to find a way to either get in a band, travel with somebody or make a little money. And it always seemed as though maybe I was just going to be a bum basically <laughs> and not really making any sense out of it. So I, I did a lot of, lot of traveling under the auspices of trying to find myself as a musician. But I remember getting on a, on a martyr bus as the martyr system in Atlanta. And I and I was I had my instruments and my books and everything and I just would go down to the park at Piedmont Park down there and sit around sometimes. Sometimes I would go over to uh, uh, area Grant Park where the zoo was and I would sit down a tree to shade and study or, or practice or do something I had to do. But this particular time I got on the bus and my eyes caught a gentleman sitting at the back of the bus reading a jazz magazine called Downbeat, right? And uh, I could not resist going back to the back and sit by him. And I didn't know how to introduce myself, was hoping that he would look up and see my horn and, and start a conversation. But that's what happened. He eventually got past a paragraph, I guess he was reading, and he finally looked over and he, and he said, he said, hey, how you doing? And he said, I see you, you have an instrument there. He said, uh, uh, I, he, you know, said, is that a trumpet in the case? And I told him, yes, sir. And lo and behold, he happened to be one of the, the trumpet players that was uh, in Duke Pearson's band. Duke Pearson was an A&R director for Blue Note Records out of New York. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea who Duke was at the time, but he was the guy who had introduced most of the, the, the record, the people that he was, since he was an A&R director, he had found most of the guys to do the recording for Blue Note Records, right? Uh -huh. And everybody knows Alfred Lyon and his, you know, his connection and with Thelonious Monk and, and, and the rest of the crew that we know about today. But I remember him telling me about those stories, but he told me about Duke Pearson and said, I'm headed over there now and said, you know, if you wanna, you know, tag along. And uh, his, na his name, we called him Top, but Charles Hines. And uh, Charles, he, he grew up in, in that Atlanta area. But he uh, introduced me to Duke Pearson and from that, I was introduced to uh, Joe Jennings, who now is my oldest living mentor. And we talk at least once a week, sometimes twice a week about music and other things. And so Joe is a retired uh, educator himself, but very prominent in, his in the area of performing jazz. He's written a lot of compositions. And uh, he retired there from Spelman after developing an all-girls ensemble 
which lasted for nearly 30 years wow. on his direction. And he has students that are out there, you know, doing some really good stuff, you know, too. Uh, for instance, he has a, you know, musician um, uh, student that we shared that I met in, in Colorado. She decided she wanted to go to Spelman. And I taught at the Mile High Jazz Camp for four years there, four, four, four summers. And this, this young uh, student wanted to get to Spelman, in which ultimately she followed her dream and met Joe, which led to her being in New York, which led to her auditioning for Beyonce's touring band. And she traveled with that for, for, for a while and still, of course, is called on to do it. Now she works at Berkeley School of Music as an, as an educator and still does, you know, major performances. Her name is Tia Fuller, if anybody wants to look her up. You know, very prominent jazz alto saxophonist. You know, one of the, one of the great blossoming performers, you know, alto sax. Well, she's doing woodwinds, I think. I've, I've heard her play some flute, too, you know, along the way. Uh, but that's it. So I guess these stories, they, they keep unfolding. You, maybe you can poke me and I can rattle a little more. But, <laughs> but how I see music is through the eyes of those people who have been very patient with me uh, learning because I didn't know how to read music. I didn't know much about the instrument itself. The way I got to Mississippi was after meeting Joe Jennings, which I just spoke of. He introduced me to Bill Fielder, who I didn't know at the time. He was a Mississippian, and Bill was a prominent trumpet teacher that I didn't even know about at that time. He was teaching students like Wenton Marcellus and Terrence Blanchard and others that we hear names about, and I, and I didn't cross paths with those guys until later on. And uh, we never became friends or anything, but we just crossed paths. I remember finally meeting Wenton at the Lincoln Center you know, after he had gotten that job there, which he's doing and, and stuff like that, you know, but, but uh, Bill Fielder was a trumpet teacher who came to Mississippi and I begged him to let me go with him. And he told me not to go stay in Atlanta cause you're learning a lot. And, and this is a city, metropolitan city. And he said, I'm going to a small town, which happened to be Itabina, Mississippi. Itabina means, means uh, Little Town in the Woods was the name that the native people gave it, but Itabina was, was it called Little Town, which is a very small town. Uh, like a, I mean, the only thing there was the college, basically. And, um, and so I, I decided, I made up my mind, if you could get me in college, I, that would ease my mind. And I didn't tell them I wanted to ease my parents' mind because they were looking at me as like, are you ever going to do anything, basically? You know, and so I... I took that opportunity and uh, of course it led me to where I am now with my you know, little, little degree background, which I don't put much emphasis on because ultimately the degree can only be as good as the person who's doing the work, you know? And so I always say that I have to figure out that the, the titles won't carry you very far, you know, it have to be something that you're doing in that job description. You know, with the title. But that led me to where I am. And, and along the way, I kept contact with all of those guys up until their deaths. And it's proven that we can only know what we know when we know it. Because as soon as you think you know it, there's another piece to it. And I always say, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's always chasing that, that extra thing, you know. All you need to do, basically, <laughs> is open the door and you'll find knowledge will just drop out of the sky if you want to embrace it. You know? <laughs>
Well, I, I was fascinated to read that you spent a year uh, in China studying well, music. Yeah, I did. It was it wasn't a year. It was a, a summer project. Oh, a summer. Okay. Fulbright grant that I was able to get, and to go over and study uh, music and art. And along the way, I you know I started studying the language. You know, what don't So I just speak a modest, you know, Mandarin. So that part, you know, I was very fortunate to do, and I learned a lot there about the connection between the Chinese culture and, and the African culture when you start to study the instruments, especially the string instruments, and then uh, the percussion instruments are very dominant. And, and one of the things, too, is, is that if you talk about your, your, your acting career, you know, acting stage performances are very big in China. And uh, operas still are, are very, very big for entertainment, the Chinese operas. And uh, of course, those instruments that we, we develop consciousness of with the, with, the, with the pentatonic scale, as we call it, as an Asian or uh, Chinese pentatonic scale, where there's an African pentatonic scale, they both share the same notes in a way. One tends to lend itself to a, a, a more minor sound well, actually, both of them do, but they they have degrees that they use that scale order in, and so there's a lot a lot of, a lot of connections between that those two cultures. And I had no idea. How does one find that out other than uh, as you did? Are there classes on that? Well, you know that's that's something else that we have to always think about in education. You know, books can can if you only read one book, it only take you so far. So yeah, there, there are things you can find out about it. But if you look at uh, all of those things where you look at uh, the great uh, discoverers, there were a lot, of, a lot of ships that came out of Africa. And you, you can go and connect some of the dots between travel and the things that people share by taking things to trade through those travels and, and how much time was spent in those areas. And because, yeah, there's a large group of Chinese culture, you know, the minority groups, just like we would think about minorities in America. There's, there's, a, there's a large group of minorities throughout Asia, throughout China, you know, in central China as well. So I was very fortunate to, to get that grant and also carried me to spend some time in Tibet, you know, during that summer. But what I found out is no matter where I went, there was a root of blues music. I even heard B.B. King many times on the TV playing the music. But at the time that he was speaking, there was a Chinese spokesman while his voice was moving. You know how you see those, those kind of karate movies or judo things that we look at and you hear somebody speaking and you, they're speaking in English, but the timing on the, on the lips don't match up, you know? Right, it, right. It was interesting to hear the voice because it was, it was a voice that I wouldn't have picked for BB's voice, but, you know, but, but the blues was there in Tibet and, 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 and there were places that you could go listen to the jazz music hmm. that was there. I met really good performing artists you know remember in beijing i stayed up all night playing at a place called it's called the jazz kitchen in translation but uh musicians who played on levels that matched anybody's playing out of any any jazz professional that you would meet what yeah. instrument did you carry with you when you went for that summer oh uh, the tenor saxophone mm -hmm. I spent time and so i dabbled with as much as i could with it uh, found out a lot of things about about that and sometimes you know sometimes the doors were open to do some things and sometimes they weren't my most interesting travel throughout uh 
to bet was meeting a family of people. And they, they told us, you know, even when they were teaching us about culture, that if you go to a village and the door, the gates are, are closed and don't don't knock, don't try to go in because they, 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 they they're not interested in entertaining guests. And the difference between some things in the Chinese culture, you can notice that that we build our yard outside the house. They build their yard and gardens inside their homes. Mm-hmm. And you'll find out of a lot of connection between the earth and and what, what they do. They share a, more or less that they belong to the earth. And we say the earth belongs to us. That's a big difference. Very well, big difference. Well, we know we're going back to the earth either way. So, yep. but, but one of the things I was going to say uh, while you have me talking here is that to me it was it was more more spiritual if I can use that phrase not to be cliche or anything but I I got off this uh, transportation bus that we had traveled from place to place and because uh, I was with a lot of other scholars it just was not me with that Fulbright at that time so we had to get together and compare notes and do a lot of other things and debriefings and so forth but I got off with my instrument and I was fascinated by this village, so I went that direction. Some other people followed, but the gate was open, and, and that was the most, because I was so happy that that was a part of it. But when I went in, there were people who met us, and, and I think especially me, because I had an instrument. And I was asked to take it out and play, and I did. And the lady who was one, she was the, the wife of the chief of that particular when you say chief, I'm using that word. They were called something else, but but the lead person, kind of like the mayor of the town, basically, right? So I started playing, and then I was told the reason that lady stood there and the reason she welcomed you in her house was because they were on the last days of their candle ritual because her husband was about to enter into his next phase of his spiritual life. And I came as proof to her that his journey was successful because musicians showed up and she allowed me to play on his drums in which she showed me what to do. And and she, you know, of course I, you you couldn't, wasn't supposed to hit them hard. It was a gentleness about them and so forth. And I had to wait until she gave me the direct moment to actually hit the drum. And it was fascinating watching it. And all through that, I had chills in my body just because I didn't know what was going on at the time. But if you look at that, there's a journey, you know, of, of the dead that, that is taught in some, in some, you know, religions. And, uh, and this particular time, I was able to share that connection with uh, the musician there. So I still have, you know, pictures and stuff that other people gave me after that particular thing. But sometimes you don't know why you, where you are and going from one side of the world to the other, you end up doing something that you probably didn't even understand what that path was was for. And I always be very mindful of, of, of things that I'm doing and why I'm doing them. And if I don't understand why I'm doing them, I don't criticize them to the degree that I can make it a bad experience, you know, for myself and for others. Right. And I try to treat students like that because that's the way I've been treated. You know. Do you get to teach one class? In I, your- I started, but like I said, things change. I hate keep using that COVID word, but things change. So now I'm doing 
strictly administration, uh, administrative work and uh, trying to make sure that, you know, things stay moving in the direction that they need to move in for us to, you know, remain successful. Have you been put uh, in touch with the uh, once a year blues festival up in Columbia? You know, I, I did. And, uh, and uh, I had that when I came here, of course, I had music jobs that I already had on my calendar. So that was a conflicting one was roots, blues and barbecue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I didn't get, but I had, I was introduced to some, some beautiful people. Yeah. Like here in town, uh, Will, Will West owns a music store here and he's, he's helped me to kind of get my, my bearings straight and introduced me to the right people, gave me some numbers and, and we started playing a little place here in town called the mission where yeah. I uh, only played there once, but you know, that was prior to that. Thing. I, I started playing a little bit in Kansas City, which changed. I, I was doing some things in Columbia at a, a beautiful spot there called Top Ten Wines there on, on 9th. And that started to become a, a, a real meeting place for, for me and others because I, I was going to be playing there uh, at least twice a month. And we started off doing it and kind of juggling around with the idea. And I said, well, let's do it. Let's see what happens. And, and of course, it turned into be a, a beautiful thing and then of course now we don't do it but uh, hopefully that'll that'll start again has some some spots in st louis you know too as well matter of fact i was getting ready to go see a good friend of mine out of new york uh a drummer that's played with you know countless people in doing his career carl allen who is on so many jazz recordings as a drummer with so many fascinating musicians and you'd be uh, be wise if you look his history up too, Carl Allen. Man. But I, I was going to see them perform at a place that bought tickets and everything shut down again, you know. Mm. But yeah, Columbia, be beautiful place, man. Beautiful vibe and, you know. Well, it's it's been a wonderful story, a series of stories that you've shared. I, I'm just so... Uh, I feel like I could listen another hour, but our time is actually uh, pretty well up. So I, I look forward to hearing your music somewhere as things open up a little more. Yeah, well, like I said, you'll hear, hear things. If you could look, look up Alfonso Sanders on YouTube, you'll get some good and bad. The song that I found to be most, I guess, ident identifiable with me is called I Want to Cook for You. And I never thought about that song because it was it was it was done in just to a, a cooking show that I was doing for a, a Viking corporation who sold you know they sold those heavy uh, 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 kitchenware, and uh, it came out of Greenwood, Mississippi. But I was I you know was of course uh, befriended by the founder of it, a gentleman by the name of Fred Call, and he you know would have me playing a lot of a lot of different spots there. But I was I was doing these cooking shows. <laughs> and they would and they would video them and use them for for teaching tools and that was a teaching area where you would would go do the shows and so i was on with a a, a lady who was a chef there and a book writer by the name of martha foos and and martha forgot that i was supposed to do my entertaining part so while she was going on and on about the cooking show she finally looked up and said, oh, I forgot Alfonso was back there kind of thing. But by that time, I had figured out if she calls me, I'm going to go out and do this thing and, and try to embarrass her, right? And so while I was in the back, 
I came up with this song. And when I say embarrassed, I mean what no, I mean just no, no major embarrassment. I just was gonna do it to say I I just wanted to see just how much I could could get her to calm down when I went out. So when she finally called me, I had crafted these words. I want to cook for you, baby, and give you something good to eat, right? Because I'm, you know, gonna and I said, I want to cook for you, baby, give you something good to eat. You be my spicy and hot. I'll be your sweet, sweet, sweet iced tea. And she fell out and, and she was blushing from head to toe. And when I bowed down on, on a, a knee and I said, Martha, you know, if you ain't married, I want to marry you. And so that people thought I was proposing to her. And that went from, boy, you talking about something, as they say, was viral in the town. <laughs> it, it became so funny. But I did that one. And later, of course, I recorded it, just went on and put some more lyrics to it and recorded it. And uh, believe it or not, it was one of the most requested songs. When I got to Columbia, people would come in and say, hey, man, can you play that cooking song? Because it's a fun song, you know. Like I said, I wish you the best in what you're doing, man. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you on campus one of these days, Wait. wherever our paths might meet again. Okay, thank you. Well, you you know, you got my contact, man. And, and I hope, yeah, I hope we do get a chance to just hang out and not but sit and talk and, yeah. and um, have a nice whatever, you know. All right. Alfonso oh. Sanders. Thank you. Thank, thank you, man. Thank you. Okay. So remember, folks, wherever you are, that is your world. So please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.